right. Well, it's good to see everyone tonight. And we had a high little time last night, that's for sure. And so today we're going to get into the scriptures. And I want to give a disclaimer before I actually get into what I'm going to teach on tonight. Some of you probably saw it on Facebook Live, or on Facebook, excuse me. We're going to continue on the series, What About Those Bodies?, and I'm going to share again, and I've shared a little bit on this before in this series, the difference between being a life-giving spirit or a living soul. Now, my disclaimer is this. As far as the natural is concerned, we're a part of creation. Okay? In the natural, we're a part of creation. And when Jesus said, call no man on earth your father... You have one, which is your Heavenly Father. He was wanting us to raise our sights above the natural. Yes, our parents, when they came together, they invoked the law of procreation, and we came forth. But according to Scripture and according to the Spirit of the Lord, the word that's written upon our heart and our mind, our Father wants us to think higher than that. So as far as the natural, yes, we're part of creation, But according to spirit, we're going to share a little bit more on how that you and I are begotten rather than created. We have to think higher. We have the heavenly mind. We have the mind of Christ. So we don't want to think just natural. You know, it says of Adam that after God had made him, you know, from the dust and then breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, then it talks about the fact that he was to leave later on father and mother. Did he have a father and mother? No. So what was he saying? I want you to think higher than father and mother, your natural heritage. Doesn't mean we don't appreciate our parents, but I want you to think higher than your natural heritage. And so this is the difference. This is right where you're going to see the difference between am I a living soul or am I a life-giving spirit? And I shared with you before how the word created corresponds with a living soul. Because God created Adam, or he made him. He made him in his image after his likeness. He created him, but it says he was a living soul. Now, the word soul does mean being. In the Hebrew, he was made a living being. But we can also see the word soul throughout Old Testament and New Testament. So I'm going to equate created and made to living soul. Is that okay? And then we're going to incorporate together the word begotten with life-giving spirit. So when Jesus incarnated, listen, if you can hear this, he was the beginning of a new species of spiritual people. Yeah. When Jesus incarnated, he was the beginning, and we were in Christ from before the foundation, but when he incarnated and came here, he was the beginning of a new type of people, a spiritual race, or a new species of people. And as we've already found out, you and I are not a living soul. How could we be a living soul and created in that sense if we're thinking higher? When we are, and we know that we are spirit slowed down to visibility. If we're spirit slowed down to visibility, we're not a living soul. 
So we're going to talk about what the difference is. Soul in the Greek is suke, and it's in the feminine. And we have taught in mind-brain connection that our right <coughs> side is our Christ mind. Our left side is, is our earth, it's our emotions, it's our senses, it's our, it's our uh, 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 logic, it's our reason. And what we want to do is take that left side, that's the wife submitting or yielding to the husband, and as we yield the left side to our Christ mind, the two are married together subjectively, and Christ is birthed. So I want us to go to the book of Jude tonight. I think there's only one chapter in the book of Jude. And I want to read verses 16 through 19. And Jude here is describing a people that were acting, this was their behavior, sensual. And how many know there's a difference between sin and sins, plural? Sin is simply mistaken identity. And when people have mistaken identity, it's just going to naturally follow that they're going to have sins, where behavior is concerned, as a result of the mistaken identity. People do what they do in the realm of sins that come as a result of the fact that they don't know who they are. People wouldn't do what they do in a bad way if they knew who they were. They would realize, I'm too good for that because I'm one. I'm in his image after his likeness. I've been begotten. So the word soul, suke, is feminine. And listen, we can get the word sensual and soulish out of suke or soul. So let's read here in Jude chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. And this was written to these people. It wasn't written to us. It was written to them, but for us. And it was written during the time of the mid-60 AD. This is when this was written. So anything that is written to these people that we can read in the scriptures is for us. Not to us, but it's for us. <clears throat> in other words, we can glean and receive a lot through them. So notice in Jude 1, verse 16, it says, These are murmurers. Have you ever done any murmuring? <laughs> and complainers. Have you ever done any complaining? Walking after their own lusts or their own desires. Lust isn't a bad word. It's not some sexual word. Jesus, when he was tempted, he was what? When, when you're tempted, you're drawn away from your own lusts, your own desires, okay? So their murmurers are complaining, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Verse 17, But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, and look at the next word, these be they who separate themselves sensual, Sensual, not having the spirit. Or in other words, everybody has spirit, but not relying on spirit, not turning within and living from the inside out. So what this writer here is, is conveying was that grumbling and complaining and causing division all comes from the soulical or the soulish realm in and of itself or the sensual realm in and of itself. Again, the word sensual is not some word that is, you know, having to do with an unhealthy sexual desire or anything like that. 
But in the Greek, listen, this is the meaning of sensual. It is one who is susceptible to their five senses. In other words, they're not yielding their five senses to their Christ mind. Their reality, in other words, is defined by what they see, what they hear, and what they feel. That's being sensual. Being led by what you feel. Not yielding those feelings, the emotions, and the five senses to the Christ mind. And so what Jude is conveying to these people here and for us is when one is led of their five senses, they grumble, they complain, and it causes division. Now, of course, as I said already, Jesus in his temptation, he overcame every temptation that was thrown at him. Someone says, well, he couldn't have uh, fallen for the temptation anyhow. Well, then what was the use of the temptation? He did not have an edge on us in that no matter what he was tempted with, he already had victory. Well, he knew he already had victory in his heart, but I'm just simply saying he did not have an edge on us. Otherwise, what would have been the purpose of him being tempted? And it says there in Luke chapter 4 that he was tempted of the devil. He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. He was tempted of the devil. What does that what is that really saying? When you study that out, he was tempted by his own desires, his own emotions. That left side wanted to rule him, but instead we can read how he was victorious in every temptation that he had. Now, in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, even in that, he overcame the five senses for himself. Why? simply to reveal to us that we have victory in those same areas. As I said before, Jesus' death exposed the religious lies that you and I embraced. That's what it did. See, he came, Scripture says that, that he sought, he came to seek and to save that which was lost, not people that were lost. They were already saved from before the foundation. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, which was what? All of the religiosity that we embraced at one time in our life. So his death exposed all of that, and his resurrection revealed the truth. In fact, I can say it this way. His death, when it comes to temptation, his death exposed anything that would try to impress us that there's more than one power. He exposed that lie. And his resurrection revealed the truth that there's only ever been one power. And that absolutely nothing has any power to defeat us whatsoever. Now that's saying a lot right there. Because each and every one of us are tempted on a daily basis. And the secret is, and the key is, just to simply take the emotions, the five senses, the intellect in and of itself, the reason and the logic and yield it to our Christ mind so that we are not in the company of these people here in Jude chapter 1 that are living essential life. We don't want to live essential life led by the five senses, right? Now, we're not trying to destroy the five senses or the emotions. We need them, or even the ego, or the intellect. You need intellect. But it simply needs to be yielded until it becomes spiritual intellect, spiritual reason. Because the scripture talks about, come, let's reason together, you see. 
But we reason simply by yielding the reason and the, and the ego and the logic and all of those faculties of the left side. We simply yield them to the Christ mind. Not destroy them, but yield them. Now, Scripture tells us that the first man, Adam, was a living soul. In other words, we can say that by virtue of his immaturity, he was sensual. He lived by his senses. In other words, God had told him, you're in my image after my likeness. But this man, Adam, this first man that was the living soul and that was immature, believed that he could do something to become like God when he already was, and he already was told that it was, he was in the Father's image and after the Father's likeness. Now, as we get into this, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want to read two verses there, or portions of two verses, verse 45, and then we'll jump on down to verse 47. We read that the last Adam was a life-giving or a quickening spirit, you know, the scripture says, calls him the second man, not the second Adam. If you read it clearly, it's the second man and the last Adam. But Adam was called the first man and the living soul. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we can read that this last Adam or this second man, as it's worded, at least in the King James Version, was a life-giving spirit, was begotten. In other words, he was the Lord from heaven. But you see, what we do is we, we continually separate that from ourselves. And we're not to separate it from ourselves. So let me read, let me read in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. It says, as it is written, the first man, Adam, notice, was made. Another word for created is made. It takes time to make something. He formed his body. He breathed into him the breath of life. And I shared with you, I think, last week. Now that the word created means to cut down for a formative process. In other words, it takes some time to cut down for a formative process. Because you cut it down and then you form it. So it takes some time. So the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was a quickening spirit. Now, notice if you have a, a decent Bible, a pretty good Bible, the word made is in italics. Can you see that? In the King James, the word made. So notice it says the last Adam... The second man or the last Adam, not made a quickening spirit. He just was a quickening spirit. Okay? Not made. Begotten. Okay? Now, in verse 47 it says then, The first man, that's Adam, the living soul, was of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Now, in times of redemption, people have been taught religiously to identify with either a pre-fall Adam or a post-fall Adam. In other words, they teach we were in Adam. We were in Adam before, but we were in Christ from before the foundation. But many teach that we were in a pre-fall, and then they'll teach we were in a post-fall Adam. But we need to understand that neither, listen, neither one of those pre-fall or post-fall is right simply because we were in Christ from before the foundation. So we need to understand that neither choice, pre-fall or post-fall, is actually authentic redemption. 
Say that again. We need to understand that if you believe you were in Adam pre-fall or post-fall, that's not an authentic redemption. But our choice must be to identify with the one, listen, who blew the breath into Adam. Not the one that had the breath blown into him. Can you hear that? So we must identify with the one that breathed the breath of life into Adam rather than identifying with the Adam who received the breath. Therefore, our choice should not be, whatsoever should not ever be of the first man of the earth or the living soul, but it must be of the last Adam, Christ Jesus, which is, as it says, verse 47, the Lord from heaven. When you identify with the Lord from heaven or when you identify with the last Adam, then that's authentic redemption. What does redemption mean? Redemption means having been saved or delivered from sin, singular, which we know is mistaken identity. Because listen, if we believe that we were in the first Adam, we are ultimately going to trust our five senses to define our reality because we're going to be sensual as Adam was. And that is the reason why people physically die today. Because they're identifying with either Eden rather than before Eden. Or they're identifying with Adam, specifically after he partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And people die today because they're doing the same thing. If they identify with the first man, Adam, they're doing the same thing as they identify that Adam did. And that is trying to do something to be like God when you're already like the Father. Hello. That's why people pass away today in their body, trying to do, and that's as religious as religious as we can get, is trying to do something to be like the Father or to be Christ-like when we already are. Now, we've said a mouthful already tonight. So in these verses here in Jude 1, 16 through 19, They're not talking about people who have committed horrible atrocities, but it's simply referring to grumblers, murderers, complainers, and those that cause division. Like first Adam. And listen, that division, when you're a murderer and a complainer, that division is first caused in you. Because you're not yielding that murmuring and that complaining to the Christ mind and living from the inside out rather than from the outside in. So this, this first Adam is about people who were ruled by their senses reacting to the external rather than responding to the internal. And say that again. If we believe that we have ever been in Adam, then we are sensual, we are a living soul, and we are reacting to senses rather than responding to the truth within us. And so as life-giving spirits, we do not react. We must respond. Do you know that our first reaction to any situation on the outward, the external realm, 90% of the time is going to determine the outcome of that situation. Depending on how we respond with the truth rather than reacting with fear. See, and the moment that one becomes reactive, you know what happens? They become toxic and tainted. 
And what they have done is what Isaiah 45, 7 says, where it says there, I create the light and form the darkness. Now, what is that talking about? That is what is called an antithesis. God does not form any darkness. There's no darkness in him. Where would he get it? He's light, life, and love. So I form the light and create the darkness, and antithesis means some words were left out, and it's talking about a people. We take the truth or the light, and we can invert it in our awareness. And then we begin to react to situations, senses, emotions, intellect, reason, ego, logic, rather than responding to the truth that we know on the inside of us. For example, let me just give you this example. In the Old Testament, we see where Joshua, when he met the angelic army commander, he said, are you for us or against us? Remember the answer? The answer was, I'm neither for you nor against you. Why? I'm not reactive. Because he knows or he knew that the truth stands alone. It does not. Listen, I don't even have to. I don't even have to try to prove the truth. The truth is still the truth. You don't have to try to prove it. The truth is still the truth. Now, for example, have you ever said, well, so-and-so caused me or made me think a certain way or some certain situation caused me to react a certain way? It made me a certain way. It either made me sad, it made me mad, or it made me happy. You ever say that? So listen, what we are saying when we say that made me a certain way, especially in the negative, we're simply reacting. We're saying that that external, that which was taking place on the outside, caused me to be reactive rather than respond to the truth that's on the inside of me. In other words, we got sensual. The sense realm determined our reality in that situation because, listen, the senses will always, or to be sensual, will always cause you to react to what's happening out here rather than what is already the truth on the inside of us. Very important for us to understand. Now, let's go to Luke chapter 17. And let me give you an example here of a scripture. Luke chapter 17 And Jesus was speaking here, and he was talking about that very thing. He was talking about the external realm and how we're not to be led by the external realm. And he was uniting it together or combining it with these people that talked about the coming of the Lord. And notice what it says there in verse 20 of Luke 17. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, the religious people, when the kingdom of God should come, Today in religion, they would say, when Jesus comes, when is Jesus going to come back and kick booty and make everything right? Well, I'm here to tell you he ain't. (laughs) Because he gave the earth to the sons of men. We're the ones that he's given and shared his sovereignty with for us to be able to to do that. So when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not going to come with observation or something you can see with the two eyes on your head. Hmm? Neither shall they say, oh, it's over here. Come over here and see the kingdom of God. Or lo, it's over there. He said, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, he's saying, the kingdom of God is not external. Why? 
because God's kingdom comes, God's kingdom comes from being co-united with the Father, the creator of the universe, and as Jude says, not grumbling, murmuring, complaining, and causing division. First of all, the division within yourself. So once we come to understand this, we need to realize that our words carry weight. You can either kill things or give life to things by your words. And scripture tells us that we are prophets, priests, and kings. And so think for a second what a bunch of murmuring and grumbling and complaining and being sensual would do for that. We would carry no weight whatsoever as kings and as priests and as prophets. We carry no weight whatsoever because by our words we're justified and by our words we are condemned. So allowing what we see to make us, whatever it is that we see on the outside, allowing that to make us a certain way is not who you and I are. That's not who we are. Because Father, listen, Father God has caused us to be sovereign. At one time God was sovereign in all of his creation. And then he said in Genesis chapter 1, 26, let us make man according to our image and after our likeness. And let us give them dominion. So what did he do? He shared that sovereignty. You know, we hear people today say God is sovereign. God is in control. It's all going to be all right. Well, not necessarily. We must exercise our Dominion. We must exercise our sovereignty and we must rule over our metron, or in other words, the area that we have influence in. And we all have influence in certain areas of our lives and we must rule in those areas. You know, the scripture says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, his awareness, so is he. But now if we're being defined by things around us, then what? And we're not guarding our thoughts, and we're not yielding the left side to the right side, then our thoughts are going to determine the manifestation within our life. So again, if we're grumbling, as Jude said, if we're complaining, if we're causing division right here in ourselves, then we're causing division on the outside of ourselves. And if we're doing that, listen... Our mind will never be our own. Wow. There's only one mind. We're going to read a scripture later. There's only one mind. You have an awareness, a hard awareness on the left side. But there's only one mind, and a lot of people are confused about this, and the one mind that we have is the mind of Christ that must be brought over to our hard awareness. We must sow seeds of life into our hard awareness, and as we do, the two become one subjectively, and then we birth Christ. We birth the answer, or we birth the manifestation to whatever manifestation we need at that time in our life. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and let's kind of dig into this for just a few minutes today. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it tells us there, that Adam, once again, was created. Another word is he was made, because it took some time. God formed him from the dust of the earth and breathed into his mouth. And I know that, you know, I'm, I'm teaching this as though it were a literal thing, and we've taught it also figuratively and parabolically and allegorically, but I'm going to use it this way just to get the point across. 
God took the dust of the earth, formed the body, breathed in him the breath of life, and that was making or that was creating. So in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed of the dust of the ground, and or formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And notice what he became. He became a living being or a living soul. Which again, the word soul in the Greek is suke. Now listen to the definition of suke, and this is what Adam was. This is why Adam, I believe, partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God told him not to partake of. He was in the age of innocence, and you know a little baby is innocent but not mature. Perfect but not mature. So I believe that Adam had this immaturity within him, and maybe it was an inherent flaw in his awareness. I don't know. I'm looking at that, possibly. But there was an inherent flaw. Beings he was created, and he did not have that heavenly consciousness of being a life-giving spirit. See what I'm saying? So soul is suke in the Greek, and it's defined as the seat of the senses. The seat of the senses, desires, affections, appetites, passions. What does that make you think of? Makes me think of the left side. It's also defined as fleshly and ego. That was in the man, Adam, that was told not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but because of immaturity, because he thought he could do something to become like God. So obviously he didn't believe he was in the image and the likeness of the Father. And of course we know that the Father said very good. He declared man to be very good. So nothing wrong with that. But when Jesus came, as I gave the disclaimer, when Jesus was incarnated, he brought forth a, if we can hear this, a new species or a new level, a heavenly people that had not been before. So this last Adam was what? The last Adam was a life-giving spirit. So the question is that, the question bears asking tonight, are we a living soul that is dependent upon the things around about us in the external, or are we a life-giving spirit breathing life into all of creation? Now let me quote this again. I quoted it earlier. As a man thinks, Proverbs 27, I think it is, as a man thinks, now listen, I'm going to add something here, and I'm not throwing the Bible away. As a man thinks, not what's written in the Bible. They said that a few times. <laughs> As a man thinks, King James says, thinketh. As a man thinketh in his heart, not according to what the Bible says alone, but what's written upon his heart and mind, as a man thinks, so is he. So, is there ever a time to grumble and complain and to cause division in your life? Absolutely not. Simply because... When we open our mouth, we either give life to... Because what you think is what you're going to speak. Words are important. And it's so important. And the reason why is because when we open our mouth, we're either speaking life to something or we're killing something. That's how much weight our words have. We speak life. Now, we already are blessed with all spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. He is all in all and all, y'all as all. But
but we still release that into our subjective experience by speaking words of life. By our words, we're justified, or by our words, we're condemned. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So we cooperate with the sovereignty of the Father by thinking correctly, by sowing seeds of our Christ mind into our feminine principle, by speaking words of spirit and life, and then that is what is going to either give life to what we want life to be given to, or it's going to destroy the things that we would rather see life given to. Now, for this, let's go to Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Now, I was raised in a very uh, religious church, Many, many years ago, I was raised as a child in a religious church that the main thing of importance was the length of your hair and the clothes that you wear. And I was not raised with a television. They believed it was a television. <laughs> Didn't have any of that in my home. It wasn't until my husband and I got married, I went and bought a television, and my mom walked in my house and said, we'll never come and visit as long as that television, well, she didn't say television, but as long as that television is there. I took it back. Boy, when my husband got home, was I in trouble. Because <laughs> I took that television back. We went and got the television. And eventually our parents did come. And, and, but you see, because of religion, because now everyone out there probably has a television. <laughs> you know, but back then, we're talking 50 or so years ago, there was no television in our house. And people ask me all the time, do you remember this show? You No, nope, never had a television. I don't have any clue about any show you're talking about. But, but the whole basis was outward or external holiness. Yeah. And it was based on the length of your hair and the clothes that you wear. And to them, that constituted holiness. It was the type of holiness that involved behavior. It was behavior driven, externally driven. And it has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do, with living the Christ life. The external has nothing to do. What you put on, what you take off has nothing to do whatsoever with living the Christ life. Now, let me say this. When you live the Christ life, there are certain things you're not going to do. And there are things that you're going to do. But not to become more holy. Not to become more righteous. We're not involved in works. Oh, there's works in our life, but because we already are righteous. Because we're right, we do right things. Yes. See, and that's understandable. Now, the Bible tells us also, I think it's in the book of James, it talks about the fact that in him there's no shadow of turning. Yes. Yes. And because we are in him, there should be no difference, because we are in him, listen to this, there should be no difference between who we are, what we think, and what we do. Mm-hmm. Say that again. Because we are in him, there should be no difference between who we be, and we know who we be, what we think, and what we do. They all need to synchronize. Who we are, and who we know we are, has to synchronize with what we think, and then it will synchronize with what we do. The works that we do, or that which flows out of our life. Because there's no shadow of turning. But listen, religion has compromised holiness. How so? Simply by allowing what appears around them externally to determine who they are. I am not 
what I wear. I mean, if I would come in here with, you know, what I was told to wear back in my religious days and would look, and I looked 20 years older back then, probably more than that, if I would come in here looking like that, that would not constitute true holiness whatsoever. But because we are holy, certainly we do. Because we're right, we do right things and so forth. But let me read this and let me get some things out of this here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Now, how many know Jesus said, we're in the world, but not of the world? Yeah. We're in the world, but not of the world. So Romans 12, 2 says this, and be not conformed. Be not conformed. From what? Be not conformed. How are you conformed? One is conformed when they live from the outside in. When external things can determine whether you're going to grumble, complain, and cause division within yourself. Anytime you're going to grumble and complain because of your outward external situation, you are being conformed to this world. And he says, we're not to be conformed to this world. But now listen, but be transformed by the renewing mind. Now, I know it says in the King James, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Of and your is not there. You only have one mind. You're not trying to bring Christ's mind to another mind that you have. So it's not the renewing of your mind. It's the renewing mind, which is the Christ mind that we sow into our left side or to our feminine principle. So it says, be ye transformed by the renewing mind that ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So in other words, he's saying here, don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking. And the world's way of thinking is based upon what's happening out here in the external. We have a lot of Christians, Eastern, Western, excuse me, evangelical Christianity, nearly all of them are grumbling and complaining about the situations in the world today. Oh, it's getting worse and worse. going to get worse and worse. And now the lights are going to go out and the money is going to go under and everything. All of these things that they're prophesying are going to happen. And there needs to be a people in the earth, and there is, that know what true prayer is. And true prayer is seeing the whole earth full of the glory of God, because the whole earth is full of the glory of God. And then the earth will be what it was created to be by the Father. Right? That's the highest form of prayer. It's the highest form of prayer. You could pray for any person that maybe is, you know, having a sickness or a something going wrong, you know, in their family. The highest form of prayer is for us to see that situation as a nothing, like Isaiah said, less than nothing with no power whatsoever. Instead of grumbling and complaining and causing division within herself and making the situation a hundred times worse. Now, Philip and Andrew came to Jesus one day and said, show us the Father. And we'll be satisfied. And how many know Jesus did not react to that? He responded to it. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I can say that to you. You can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I got this revelation the other day, and, and unbeknownst to me, this morning, I received a question uh, through private Facebook 
And it was the very revelation that was quickened to me, I think it was just yesterday or the day before, and it was this. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, and this is kind of off the subject, but I'm going to go down this trail. When Jesus was on the cross, he looked at those that put him there. Of course, we know no man. He said, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely that I might take it up again. But he looked at those people that, that, that tortured him and hung in there, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, wait a minute. Father's love. He's never offended. He's never offended. He told us we're blessed when we're not offended by anything, but we think Father was offended by what we did, and so he had to forgive us? Absolutely not. Love isn't offended. So there's no forgiveness involved in that. So what was Jesus meaning when he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? How many know that Jesus never did any sin, anything, but he saw the Father do? He didn't say anything but what he heard the Father say. So what was he doing? He was turning within himself, calling upon the Christ consciousness so he could forgive them. Had nothing to do with the Father forgiving him. Jesus wanted to forgive them. And so he called upon that the Father, which is Christ consciousness. He called upon that love to be raised up within him so he could look at those people that nailed him to the cross and say, you're forgiven, I hold nothing against you. See, Jesus, listen, Jesus as son of man was nailed to the cross. He had the same passions we have. He didn't have an edge on us. We have the same father to turn to, the Christ consciousness to turn to within us, that he did. So this morning I get this question about that. And I was able to tell this particular lady that asked that question. And it's a good question because we teach around here, well, God didn't, you know, he wasn't offended by anything we did, so... If you're not offended, you don't have. There's no propensity to have to forgive in the first place. So then, what was that about when Jesus said, "Father, forgive them; they know not what they do"? It was Him calling upon the love of the Father within Him, calling upon the Christ consciousness, because He didn't do anything but what He saw the Father do, or say anything but what He heard the Father say. Are you here? Yes. Would you go home yes. now? I got off track there, but let me go back to what I was saying. <laughs> Show us the Father, and it will satisfy us, they said. And he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I'm going to tie that into Romans 8, 29, which says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the same image of his Son. In other words, Creation experiences Father God through you and I. What does it say in Romans chapter 8, around verse 23? One translation says, All creation is on tiptoe, looking, looking, looking for the manifestation of the sons of God. And listen, we're talking about what about those bodies? And it ties it into the sons of God that are experiencing subjectively the redemption of the body. Because the groaning creation is looking for people that have fruit that remains in spirit and soul and body. Yes. Why? So they can be delivered into the glorious liberty of the sons of God, too. Yes. Now, when we started this series, so let me just say, you're not a living soul. Essential. And I gave you the meanings of soul. 
You're a life-giving spirit. You are begotten of the Father. And I gave you quite a few scriptures of a few messages ago. And I'll give you a few more today in closing. You're begotten. Jesus' incarnation started a whole new race or species of new creation people. A, a people of a higher mentality, a higher awareness, a higher identity, a higher destiny. Everything was higher. Now, let me say this. We started in Deuteronomy in this series where it talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that life and death are set before us. And he told us what to choose. And if we choose life, it says we're going to dwell in the land. That's the body. And your descendants are going to see that on down in the generations, and they're going to experience it as well. So choose life. So let me present it to you this way. Even though we have never been in Adam, we were always in Christ. Yet the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, I think around verse 22, for as in Adam all die. doesn't say all are in Adam. You won't find that, and I can explain that if anyone would have a question on that. It doesn't say we are in Adam. It says for as in Adam all die. So in other words, if we choose our identity and believe that our identity was in Adam rather than Christ, then we're going to have the same results as Adam had. We're going to think we have to do something to be like God when we already are like him. And as I've said many times, you cannot become any more like the Father or Christ any more than you can enter into this room that you're already in. Try to enter this room. You can't. And so Adam's problem, I think before he partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, his first problem was in doubting that he was in the image and the likeness of God. Had he not doubted that, he never would have tried to do something to be like the Father. And that is what causes physical death today. Just as it caused Adam to croak 900 and some years later after he tried to do something and to be something that he already was. Now, I shared with you that the word begotten is monogenetic or monogene. And so let's look at a few scriptures about begottenness, how that we are begotten. John chapter 1 is the first one. We're going to look at about four, and then I'm going to close. The word begotten in Greek, it's number 3439. It means only born. It means soul, S-O-L-E, soul. Comes from 3441. That means remaining single, and it's the Greek word monogene. Now, when people read scriptures that read that Jesus Christ was the only begotten son, they think, oh, well, maybe we were then the 50 millionth one down the road, but no. When you were born again or realized your origin, you had to come to the conclusion that there was only one life, and the same life that you were realizing, that's what born again means, or born from above, remember your origin. That's all it means. It doesn't mean walk in the Nile and say the sinner's prayer. It means in the Aramaic to remember your beginning, and we're beginning to remember, right? So we're being born from above more and more and more in our understanding. But when you read words like, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son... It makes you think he had an edge on you. Yes. Yes. And you were just 
maybe the 50 millionth one who was born again. But when you were born again, you were born again of the same life. In other words, when it dawned on you, when your origin dawned on you that you were never an Adam, you were always in Christ, you came to realize there's only one life. There's only ever been one power, only ever been one life. And the same life that Jesus Christ incarnated as is the same life that we had even from before the foundation. And that's why we are spirit slowed down to visibility. Meaning your body is just as spirit as your spirit is spirit, and your heart awareness is just as spirit as your spirit is spirit. I don't know how else to say that. You are spirit in your body. Spirit in your... You know, that's why 1 Thessalonians 5.23 in the classical uh, Amplified Edition says... We are sanctified, and it means holy. It means deified. We are sanctified through and through spirit, soul, and body. So your body's holy. It's just as holy as your spirit is holy. And it's going to be that understanding, or that's going to be part of the understanding that we're going to have conceived and quickened within our heart awareness in order for us to live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. I mean, that's good news. That's good news. It's not about death. It's about the fact. Listen, if he said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, choose life, then that means you have dominion where death, physical death, is concerned. Otherwise, that's not fair to say choose life. How could you if you don't have dominion? And every person that Jesus raised from the dead or anyone else raised from the dead was to show to us that we have dominion where physical death is concerned. Beyond sickness and disease and accidents, but where physical death is concerned. The fact that Jesus said, no man takes my life, I freely lay it down that I might take it up again, was to show us you and I have that same dominion. We have the same dominion, folks. Now, have you found John 1.14 yet? John 1.14. Look what it says. And the word was made flesh. You could say spirit was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten or monogene of the father full of grace and truth now remember if you see the word only begotten some places it says that he was not the only son but a son I understand that but I don't even care if it says that because when I read only begotten son and it's speaking of Jesus and I then understand that there's only one life, then I know that includes me too. (laughs) The only begotten. I'm just as begotten and a living, life-giving spirit as Jesus was begotten in a life-giving spirit. Because there's only one life. Only one life. Which means what is said of Jesus, George, is said of us. Everything about him that's said of of him, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, it's all true about us. Every bit of it's true about us. Now, another verse is still in John 1. Jump on down to verse 18, which states, No man hath seen God at any time. Why? Well, Father God is in the invisible realm. (laughs) See? So, no, that's why no man has seen him. You have to know that. That's something you have to know. Okay? But here's what I want us to get. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Well, we're in the bosom of the Father too, just as Jesus was, because bosom just simply means the heart of the Father. 
the prayers, the sinner's prayer, <laughs> the sinner's prayer, and ask Jesus to come into our heart. We've always been in the heart of the Father. Yes. yes. And he, his life has always been in us. Yes. The first breath you took was the life, the spirit, the life-giving yes. spirit that was already in you as you, but you experienced it subjectively at that time. Now, John 3, 18. Oh, and this is, this is one they use. I'm telling you, they use this to minister so much death and condemnation. John 3, 18. Well, the next one, John 3, 16, we'll read after we read John 3, 18. It says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name... And name means nature, it means character, and it also means way of the only begotten Son of God. Wow. Again, that includes us. We have the same nature, same character. We have the divine nature. We didn't come here in Adam, and our nature got corrupted, and so therefore we have to ask Jesus into our heart to get a divine nature. We always had a divine nature. We just had to know that and realize that. See, that's all it took to receive that. Yes, we receive it. But again, receive means to take into yourself that which has always been yours. Now, jump on down to verse 16, John three sixteen. This is the one the people use to just preach so much death and condemnation. It's another monogene. Begotten is monogene. You have the same genes in you as the Father, as Jesus Christ, as you said that way. Monogene. So it says, for God so loved the world, now listen to this, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, to most people, religiously, to not perish means to go to hell and experience eternal conscious torment, when there's no such thing as that. You create your own hell here. No such thing as eternal conscious torment. Okay? So what does it mean if we believe in him, we're not perished, but we'll have, ever, have means to experience subjectively everlasting life. Well, this is what it means. We perish, and perish means to wilt. You ever seen a, a wilted flower? Of course you have. Lettuce that's wilted? You go in the grocery store and it's all wilted? You ain't taking that one. It's not experiencing life. Okay? So perish here, we believe so we don't wilt away from experiencing the everlasting life. That's all it's saying there. It also means to die. Perish or wilt means to die or to cease to exist. But it's never going into some eternal conscious torment. And that's how it's preached. It's never that. To perish is to wilt or to draw back from the subjective experience of this everlasting eternal life. So, if we believe that we're in the image of the first man who was a living soul, we'll live, then, as we read in Jude 1, 16 through 19, we'll live grumbling a lot and complaining a lot, judging things by the appearance around, how it looks, how it feels, by these two eyes on our head, rather than the single eye that Jesus said, if you let this single eye manifest in you, your whole body will be full of light. So if we live from the external, grumbling, complaining, causing division here, first of all here, then guess what? We're a living soul. We're sensual. But if we know that we are one in Christ and we have always been one in Christ, 
Christ as a life-giving spirit that has been begotten rather than created, then we're not going to have all this grumbling and complaining and dividing ourselves from who we really are. So what are we tonight? We're a living soul or are we a life-giving spirit? Were we created and made or were we begotten? Now, once again, as I said, in the natural, we are a part of creation. But the reason Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, you have one which is your heavenly father, raise your sights to the heavenly realm and see yourself as the Lord from heaven. See yourself as the life-giving spirit. See yourself begotten rather than created. And when we begin to see that, when it's really conceived in our heart awareness, when it's quickened there, it becomes real to us, we'll no longer be sensual as a living soul. Again, the reason people die is because they believe that they're in Adam. They think like Adam. They grumble. They complain. They're sensual. They cause division. And as a result, they die physically. Simply because, and this is so simple, we haven't seen the forest for the trees, people die because they're trying to do or become, do something to become who they already are. Rest in who you already are. Rest in the fact that you were begotten. Raise your sights to the heavenly realm where you're seated and rest out of the fact you were never in Adam, so therefore you don't have to try to do something to become as Christ in the earth. You already be Christ in the earth. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. That's who we be. And once we really begin to resonate with that and sit with that truth, sit with that truth, meditate, you want to call it that, sit with it, ponder it, contemplate it. And as you do, you be your heart awareness is going to be pregnant. There's going to be a conception there and a quickening is going to take place within your life. No more grumbling, complaining, and causing division. Amen. We are a life-giving spirit because we are begotten of God, begotten of the Father. Father, we thank you tonight for who you are in us, through us, as us. Thank you for the truth, the revelation. Thank you for our spirit that quickens and conceives these words within our heart awareness as we sow the seeds. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for this group of people. And we shall ponder and sit with these truths and come to the realization of who we truly be in you. Bless you and honor you in the name of the Lord. Amen.